unattached. got uh, kids and if you're like me you may have noticed that there's almost no issue where kids are more propagandized than with climate change Uh, they're being taught that they will die that they will never have children that all the penguins are going to be dead in my view this is this is close to evil I mean, these are people that want control, not to save animal lives, not to save human lives. They want power. But what do you tell a kid? What do you tell a kid about climate change? Okay, here's what you tell them first. First, you tell them everything will be okay. You're not going to die. You're not going to live in a world in which there's no more snowballs and no more wild animals. You're not going to starve. In fact, you will be fine. The best predictions are that there'll be, uh, you know, there will be storms and floods and the like, but we're pretty good at handling them already. We're way better than we used to be, and we're going to keep getting better all the time. Now, to be clear, I think that there is global warming. I think the earth is on average getting warmer. I think that probably CO2 and other emissions uh, to a large extent responsible. That may not be right, but I think it is. And there are good reasons to think that this is going to cause problems in the not that distant future. I also think that all of the things you've heard about sunspots and volcanoes are very speculative, even more speculative than the idea uh, that CO2 is the issue. But these are not nearly the problems that most media sources, politicians and NGOs would have you believe. We're able to have, uh, handle these problems better than at any time in human history, and we're getting better all the time. Even if the Earth is somewhat warmer in 100 years, we're going to be better off than, than we are now. Besides, the Earth is already turning the corner on the environment, especially in rich countries. And when more countries get rich by adopting capitalism, then that corner is going to get turned even faster. So let me just go through some of these numbers for you. Just some things that you can tell your kids when they ask you, but what about sea level, right? So we've been told for decades now that the seas are rising, that half the country is going to be flooded. So first thing to know is we are actually still technically in an ice age, right? So an ice age just means that there's permanent ice on the poles. Uh, We're in what's called an interglacial period. That is to say, the glaciers are no longer advancing. The earth is not getting more cold, but rather retreating. Now, this is not new. This is not caused by CO2. Uh, In fact, the the peak of the last glaciation was 20,000 years ago. So uh, the glaciers have been melting for 20,000 years. So at that period, uh, sea level was 400 feet lower than it is now. So this is how Asians migrated across the land bridge to North America. Notice it wasn't an ice bridge. It was a land bridge. It was a land bridge because there was so much uh, water, seawater tied up in ice that sea level was just much lower. So sea level has been rising ever since. Now, uh, if you think about it, that means that sea level has risen about 120 meters 
in the last 20 centuries. That's about half a meter a century. Now get this, the IPCC estimates that sea level rise over the next century will be 0.6 meters, right? So the average sea level rise over the last 20,000 years will be the same as the next 100 years. Now, that's not to say that sea level rise isn't somewhat increasing, right? Sea level rise hasn't been precisely the same over that same over that entire 20,000 year period. But it does mean that we're not in some apocalyptic situation. I actually read a story in the newspaper not long ago about how San Francisco had the oldest continually operating tide gauge in the United States. And I looked online and you can it, it reports the data daily, monthly, weekly going back for more than a century. I think it was 1890 or something like that. So I just took the monthly average tide gauge going back, you know, more than a century, put it into Google Sheets. And guess what? There's a slow, steady increase in sea level rise, as you would expect, with absolutely no sign of acceleration. Uh, remember, almost all of the measurements that you see, whether it's global temperature, sea level, any of these things, are estimates based on models. But when you look at the actual measurements, you don't see the kind of dramatic changes that you do when, uh, when you're using backward-looking models. Now, even if sea level rises a little bit faster than it now than it was, say, in the 19th century, this is not necessarily a disaster. I mean, remember, the Netherlands are seven meters below sea level now, and they were 100 years ago as well. And the Netherlands is a rich, thriving country. So, you know, any remotely developed country, you know, something along the lines of where the Netherlands was a century ago, is going to be able to handle sea level rise. What about hurricanes? You sometimes hear that uh, hurricanes have gotten vastly more disastrous uh, over the last century because of climate change. It's not true. Even NOAA, this is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, admits that there is no pattern of more hurricanes or stronger hurricanes over the last century. And that's about as far as we uh, have been keeping track. Same for tornadoes. What about fire? Uh, there was a 25% decrease in forest area burned from 1998 to 2015. Uh, over the last 35 years, net new tree growth exceeded loss by an area the size of Texas and Alaska combined. In Europe, an area the size of Belgium, Netherlands, Switzerland, and Denmark grew back in Europe between 1995 and 2015. This is incredible numbers, right? Yes, it's true there are fires. Yes, it's true that forest is burning down. But the net in developed places like North America and Europe is that the forests are growing back at an unprecedented rate. Teach your kids that it is not true that the earth is getting less green. According to a famous 2016 study from NASA, a quarter to half of the earth's vegetated land has shown significant greening over the last 35 years, largely due to rising levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. This was published in Nature. We're not talking about a small change either. I mean, this is an area twice the size of the continental United States. And the carbon dioxide fertilization explains 70% of that greening effect. So in a separate 2019 study, NASA showed that the Earth is greener now than it was 20 years ago. But what about natural disasters? Okay, what about this? In 1931, 3.7 million people died globally from natural disasters. In 2018, the number was 11,000.
Now, of course, anyone dying is not good, but that's a 99% decrease over a period of time when global population increased by 400%. Also, supposedly it's the time where global warming has made our world increasingly dangerous. So how could it be that there's a 99% decrease in the number of natural disaster deaths? Well, the answer is obvious. Right? We have better construction. We have uh, a, a global network of satellites that enable us to warn people when bad weather is coming. We have the ability to get in the car and drive away from an oncoming storm, something that in 1931 almost nobody had the ability to do. All of these things are only possible because of the economic development. Right. Get rid of the economic development and we're going to go back to the days of three and a half million people dying in natural disasters. We're going in the right direction, not the wrong direction. What about CO2 emissions? So it's come to a place where CO2 is the most important single compound, the most important single substance that we're talking about. Well, think about this. U.S. CO2 emissions have declined by 760 million tons since 2005. This is by far the biggest decline of any country. We used to be the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide, but China is now by far the biggest. We also used to be the biggest per capita emitter. Now we're 11th and falling. Over the last 15 years, US CO2 emission declined by 13% overall and 20% per capita. This means that not only is it falling, but it's even falling more precipitously per person. Actually, U.S. per capita CO2 emissions peaked in the United States in 1975. We've been falling for 46 years, more or less. This is mainly due to reductions in the energy sector, right? So transportation and manufacturing have continued to increase, but the reductions in emissions in the energy production have gone down so much that it's enabled us to uh, continue this decline. And if you think that this is because of solar and wind, only a tiny percentage of the CO2 reductions come from solar and wind, with the vast majority come from natural gas. So what's the deal? Why is natural gas now such a big a part of reduction in CO2 emissions? Well, the answer is it's gotten a lot cheaper to use natural gas over the pre previous decades. It always has sort of naturally, quote unquote, naturally has lower CO2 emissions than oil or coal. But it's gotten a lot cheaper, partly because of technology, but mostly because of fracking, right? Fracking has made gas, natural gas, so cheap that it's become economical to build power plants based on natural gas. So that's why we've had this huge uh, reductions. It's been the move from coal to, uh, to natural gas. Now, as of now, fracking is under tremendous pressure. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, it, it could be that uh, those gains from uh, from the use of natural gas are going to be reversed. We, we won't know, uh, you know, for a few years now, but it's it's not looking great. And by the way, most of the, the increase has come at the expense of coal. So coal, you know, releases a lot of carbon dioxide, but it also releases a lot of other pollutants. Nobody really wants to have coal as being your major uh, source of energy if you can, because it does a lot of things that we don't want. And, uh, you know, natural gas is an almost unalloyed improvement as long as the costs are there.
Okay, but what about wind? I mean, sometimes you'll see things like wind is now cheaper than gas in the headlines or some country is using, you know, 90% of its energy coming from wind and so on. This is not really true. Anytime you see those calculations, wind is only cheaper if you include subsidies and remove all the other co-found uh, uh, confounders from your calculations. So, for example, according to XL Energy, a megawatt of electricity from gas costs $30. But wind costs $54 and solar costs $94. Uh, on top of that, there's all kinds of things that are not usually calculated in those, uh, in those figures. Things like uh, if you use a lot of wind and solar, you have to have a more expensive uh, updated energy grid, right? So the overall energy costs are going to be more if you include wind and solar, uh, even setting aside the, uh, the, the, the price sort of at the pump itself. Now also, and this is, I think, very underappreciated, is this idea of wind and solar uh, not being uh, a stable, reliable source of energy. So of course, everybody knows that they don't produce, you know, uh, you can't produce solar electricity at night or wind when the wind isn't blowing or when it's blowing too much, or as we saw in Texas, when it gets too cold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the deal. That means you absolutely have to have other sources of energy production on hand all the time. And how much, right? So let's say you've got a whole bunch of solar, right? Enough solar that on a, a sunny day, it could produce 90% of your energy needs or something. How much of that 90% do you need to have backed up? The answer is all of it, right? If the sun isn't shining, there's no way any utility could afford to have enough battery uh, uh, batteries uh, stored energy to be able to account for that. Not even 1% of it. It's wildly too expensive. The only way to economically back it up is through nuclear or through gas. And the answer is usually gas. So 100% of the energy that's produced by wind and solar has to be backed up by gas. So obviously that, that automatically makes it almost twice as expensive in terms of uh, your initial costs. But here's the thing. You can't just turn a gas uh, a generator on and off. It takes a lot of time. Basically, this means that it has to be on idle almost all the time. This means that wind and solar are constantly producing carbon dioxide uh, emissions because of these gas plants that have to be idling all of the time. Oh, and by the way, nuclear is $33 per megawatt and emits zero carbon dioxide. Uh, speaking of money, you'll sometimes hear the argument that, well, lives are more important than money. So uh, therefore, we shouldn't take into account any of, the, any of these numbers or any of these costs with our calculations because lives are the only thing that matter. Well, look, the truth is that increased productivity saves lives and improves lives. Right? Increases in wealth uh, uh, make us better able to adapt to climate change, but they also make us better equipped to fix climate change. For example, right now we use less land to grow more food. You might not know this, but the amount of land used in agriculture peaked worldwide in the 1990s. Right? And think about this. Over that time, in 1990, 20% of people in the world were malnourished. That number has now declined by almost half. That means 820 million people that used to go hungry now do not. This was 1990, right? 30 years ago, well within the lifetime of most people on this earth. Now, the IPCC 
estimates that the global economy is going to be 300 to 500 percent larger in 2100. Right? Now think about this. Global warming, if even if it was by four degrees Celsius, would decrease that number by somewhere from two to five percent. It's it's nothing. It's nothing. Right. Now, a big reason that poor countries like Bangladesh are poor is that they don't have good sources of quality, reliable energy. And giving them wind turbines is, is a slap in the face. This means that they have expensive, unreliable energy. What they should be doing is building cheap, coal-fired power plants as fast as they can until they're rich enough to switch to nuclear. All right, what about starvation? So it's been claimed that Africans are uh, suffering starvation and devastation due to uh, climate change, and while they uh, participate very little in emissions. But the truth is, uh, global rates and rates of uh, death by famine in Africa have plummeted during the industrial era. Why? Well, it's primarily because of higher crop yields through the use of tractors, fertilizers, transportation systems, and refrigeration. Right? All of them use fossil fuels. And what Africa needs is not less of those things, but a lot, lot, lot more of those things. Imagine if African farmers had access to all of the capital-intensive stuff that European, North American, and increasingly Chinese farmers have access to. They could produce vastly more food than they do right now. Banning fossil fuels would increase starvation in Africa and everywhere else for that matter. Now, the UN does predict lower crop yields because of global warming. But get this, that pre the prediction is a 6% decrease in yields for one degree of warming. But we already produce enough food to feed 10 billion people. And the UN also predicts that crop yields overall will increase by 30% by 2050 and 80% in sub-Saharan Africa. So what that means is that any decrease from global warming will be massively swamped by just the use of capital-intensive farming techniques. Right? What Africa needs is tractors, fertilizer, and higher-yield seeds. I, I saw this uh, in person in China. So the first time I went to China, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe 2000, I don't know, early 2000s. Uh, I still saw lots of farmers in the countryside kneeling in, uh, you know, flooded rice paddies, uh, planting, harvesting, weeding by hand, right? So one person could, you know, tend to, you know, maybe half an acre. And it was grueling, intense work, hour after hour, in the hot sun, bent over. It was hard work for very little reward. Now when you go there, and, and the people there were still, you know, much more food insecure than anyone in the United States, even at that time. And it was vastly better than it had been in previous decades. Now you just do not see that thing. I, 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 I can't remember the last time I saw an individual uh, bent over doing that kind of work in a rice paddy, right? Now what you see are tractors and high-tech machinery and perhaps not as much in some places as the United States. And China has gone from being a, a country that was literally starving to the biggest exporter of food in the world. Food security has all but vanished. It, it's very much like the United States in that way. Okay, but what about water? So I, I read uh, recently that uh, that some activists are claiming that groundwater shortages in India are due to global warming. Now, I, this actually happened to my hometown. We had a severe water shortage there about, I don't know, 
10 years ago or something like that. Now, it's no surprise in a certain way, right? Like it's a city built in the middle of a desert with 150,000 people. Uh, of course, there's going to be issues around water. So anyway, the, the population started to spike uh, about a decade ago. The city was unprepared. And when I went home to visit, it was pretty dramatic. I mean, the you know, literally the water from the tap was disgusting. It's, it, you know, it tasted like lake water. Uh, people literally were having private trucks driven in full of water to be able to, uh, you know, j j get what they needed. Thousands of trees all over the city died. Uh, and the city, what they ended up doing was just spending a boatload of money to dramatically increase uh, uh, production uh, on a pipeline uh, from a distant lake to get enough water. But they did. They, they successfully got it. It was a scary moment. And, you know, my heart goes out to people in India that don't have those kinds of uh, uh, resources to be able to build pipelines and ship in, you know, truckloads of water and so on. But listen, water scarcity is hardly new to India and global warming may or may not have anything to do with it. I mean, water insecurity has been a way of life in India for thousands of years and Australia and Africa and much of the Western United States. I mean, there's archaeological difference, uh, archaeological evidence of cisterns going back thousands of years that were used to store up, you know, this precious little water they would get for the dry months. The population of India has exploded and the pressure on the water supply has grown. So I actually uh, went and looked up the annual precipitation in India for the last century plus or so, put it in Google Sheets, and again, there's absolutely no clear pattern of lower rainfall leading to, uh, to this kind of water insecurity. According to NASA, 2019 was an especially wet year in India. The annual monsoon was the largest in 25 years. Another thing you'll sometimes hear is the uh, declines in birds and also other species. But it, it is true that we're facing big declines in bird species. But there's no indication that it's caused by global warming. And in fact, one thing that we do know does uh, kill a lot of birds are wind turbines. According to the Audubon Society, wind turbines kill an estimated 140,000 to 328,000 birds each year in North America, making it the most threatening form of green energy. And yet, it's one of the most rapidly expanding. Now, what about uh, sea ice? So sometimes you'll hear, well, the poles are melting, and this is, this is proof they're going to be uh, ice-free in just a few years. In fact, this, uh, these predictions of ice-free Arctic are like their own literary genre. So here, here's a few. Uh, in 2016, Peter Wadhams, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, confidently claimed that the Arctic would be ice-free in one to two years. He wrote a book called The Farewell to Ice. Not true. In 2009, Al Gore famously claimed that uh, the polar uh, ice cap would be completely free within five to seven years. Not true. 2008, James Hansen, the famous climate change scientist, predicted that there would be no summer Arctic ice uh, within five to ten years. Obviously not true. A paper by scientists from NASA used a model to show that summer sea ice would vanish in the Arctic by 2016. Not true. The BBC claimed the Arctic would be ice-free by 2013. Not true. Uh, there's still Arctic ice. It's still there. You know, I could go on and on, but all of these predictions are wrong. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that Arctic sea ice waxes and wanes with no clear trajectory downward. The, what actually happens is that when there's a year with less ice, it's reported a lot. And when there's more ice, it's not reported a lot. 
There's tons of these kind of ongoing extreme predictions that become an embarrassment, right? So famously in 2010, Glacier National Park put up warning signs for the visitors that all the glaciers would be gone by 2020. So, of course, in 2019, they quietly removed all the signs when the glaciers didn't melt. Uh, wrong predictions in science are not proof uh, that the current predictions will be wrong. But the fact is, when you have the same scientists and politicians making the same wrong predictions in always the same direction, it's time to show them a lot less confidence. Now, what about extinctions? This is something that children particularly get wound up about, and understandably so. You know, they don't want to live in a world with no polar bears or no penguins or whatever it is. Here's something you don't hear very often. Since 1750, there have been 561 confirmed, I'm sorry, that's 571 confirmed extinctions. Now, is that a lot or is that a little? I don't know. But there are over 7 million species of animals, uh, and most of the ones that have gone extinct were on islands with very small populations. And not a single whale species is in danger of extinction anymore. And the truth is global warming impacts cold places more than warm places, and there are just a lot more living things in warm places. Uh, the truth is that global warming at present does not in any way indicate some kind of uh, a global catastrophe of extinction. Now, what about CO2? So um, anatomically modern humans evolved about 200,000 years ago. But actually, we go much further back than that. Our, our uh, evolutionary line uh, diverged from the nearest common ancestor six million years ago. Now, most of the plants and animals that make up our ecosystem are even older than that. So, for example, penguins evolved uh, something like 40 million years ago. Through that time, there has been huge diversity in the amount, in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, for example, uh, you know the famous Lucy skeleton uh, that was uh, supposedly one of our, uh, our ancestors, probably true. Uh, temperatures were double digits warmer today uh, th uh, than today, right? And with a similar CO2 atmospheric concentrations. So our ancestors evolved in a warm climate in a period, the Earth's history that was a lot warmer today. So there's no indication that we wouldn't be able to survive in warmer climate, and all the more so of all these different species that evolved much earlier than us. I mean, already people survive in a huge range of temperatures. People like the temperate zone temperatures, but we survive in much colder temperatures and much warmer temperatures. There's absolutely no reason why we can't continue to flourish even if the world does warm. Why is this going on? Why are our children being propagandized like this, scared to death like this? I recently saw, it was kind of an interesting thing. It was a presentation from a, a, a climate activist talking to a group of Zen priestesses. They gave me permission to watch the, uh, the video, and it was all about you know, the necessity of cutting carbon dioxide. Interestingly, she admitted, uh, the, the speaker herself admitted that she flew all around the world on jets doing these presentations and probably emitted several times more carbon dioxide than the average person. Uh, but she said that we all needed to live at the emissions level of a person from rural India. Now understand, this will not happen. France had years of protests uh, over higher taxes on gasoline. 
Nobody, nobody in the developed world is going to accept that level of deprivation. We are not going to voluntarily return to the emissions level of a rural person in India. Nobody in India accepts that level of deprivation. They are urgently trying to get to a developed place uh, like the United States or like the richest places in India or Europe. Right? I, I suggest that 99% of people, maybe more, would not consider, quote unquote, a voluntary communal village living as an alternative to global warming. Nothing short of a totalitarian dictatorship could force people to live that way. Uh, and besides, if they did, the death toll would be massive, easily dwarfing the worst uh, uh, predictions of global warming. I mean, every tree in in Canada would be cut down in two years if we were deprived of fossil fuels. So why are people pushing this climate agenda? Well, part of the answer is that almost all climate change research is funded by the government. And the result of that always is, guess what? We need more government, right? So what would happen uh, what would happen to the funding of any scientist who came back that said, oh, actually, it turns out there's not a climate emergency. We don't need more government. Would government give them more money to continue that research? Well, I suggest the answer might be no. <laughs> the truth is we could solve this problem right now. The problem is not as bad as it's made out to be, but we have our, in, our, in our grasp the ability to solve it more or less right now. We have the technology to dramatically reduce carbon dioxide emissions for minor uh, increase in costs right now. Nuclear energy is nearly as cheap as uh, natural gas. It has far lower emissions, even lower emissions than gas and solar. Uh, I'm sorry, than wind and solar that I mentioned before. Uh, it is safe. Nobody has ever died from radiation uh, in the United States from a, a nuclear power plant. Anyone that claims to care about the environment but does not want to build nuclear, that's someone I don't trust. That's someone that doesn't really actually care about carbon dioxide emissions. They are lying to you. They want power. So right now I'm looking at a headline. This is online. I'm not sure where it's from exactly, but it's a newspaper story with a headline. Kids are cute, but they're not really eco-friendly. And then it's all about how, you know, well, if you drove an electrical car, you could save this much carbon dioxide emissions, but by far the worst is kids. You know, having kids, that's just a disaster for the world. This might be the most appalling thing you could tell a kid that by their existence, they're hurting the planet. They are not our bodies, ourselves are as natural and beautiful as any polar bear, any whale, any bird. Every life is precious and valuable and none more so than our kids. That's what you tell our kids. You tell your kids that we care about the earth because we care about each other. We talk about pollution because we want to live in a more clean and safe earth for humans to live in. Tell your kids the world is lucky to have them. Don't listen to people that are constantly trying to scare you. They're using fear to manipulate you. If there are problems, we are creative and we are productive and we will fix them. The best people to solve these problems are free people working in a free market in a free world. <laughs>